Let me start the sermon out by beginning with some lyrics to a song. See if you recognize these lyrics. We'll build a world of our own that no one else can share. All our sorrows will leave far behind us there. And I know you will find there'll be peace of mind when we live in a world of our own. That song was sung by the Seekers in the late 1960s. And if it's recognizable, that means that you really are quite old. (laughs) And you do have eccentric music tastes. Because as far as I can tell, the Seekers never made it big. And that song never cracked the top 40 back in the late 1960s. But it's a very familiar theme on the radio today. Pretty much every song out there addresses this This belief, commonly held belief in our society, that if I can find that one special person, Mr. or Mrs. Wright, will just walk into my life, then the the key to my meaning and security and happiness will finally be uh, fulfilled. The key to everything is to find that one special person who will treat me as I deserve to be treated, and just the two of us will build a world of our own that that is, uh, it fulfills all of the deepest longings that, that our hearts have. That's pretty much what we hear in our world, isn't it? I've chosen John chapter 4, this compelling story that Jesus Christ um, has with a woman who has tried to build a world of her own from relationship after relationship. She's been on this desperate quest to find meaning and security, love and happiness throughout uh, pretty much all of her adult life. And she keeps getting burned. So let's read it, John 4, verse 3. Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks... This water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. She replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. The woman said, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we worship, we must worship, is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when, the, when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who am speaking to you, I am he. Well, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what, are you, what, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving the water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. You skip to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Isn't that a great story? It really is. Um, We... Living as we do in the 21st century and in America, we miss a number of the the cultural um, oddities that could be found in this story that an original reader of John's gospel would immediately recognize. So I wanted to start out by listing a couple of these for you. They they would have gotten it. We don't get it quite as easily. And then we'll move on to uh, what's the significance. The, The first cultural taboo that Jesus is breaking is... Well, it's fairly obvious. You have two people here, Jew and Samaritan. It says in the passage that Jews do not associate with Samaritans, verse 9. Um, that's putting it kindly. <laughs> if I were to characterize the relationship between Jews and Samaritans in the first century with some kind of uh, modern relationship, it's probably closer to, say, the Shia and Sunni relationship in Islam or Israeli and Palestinian relationship in the West Bank. The the two groups truly hated one another, just despised each other. Part of the reason is because the Samaritans originally were Jews. They were from one of the tribes of Israel. They traveled up north and there they intermarried with pagans. And so the Jews of Jesus' day would have called them half-breeds would have also called them heretics because they took their strain of Judaism and intermingled it with the paganism of the culture that they were in and and they got this abominable religion or so Jews would have said. So Jews and Samaritans don't associate and they certainly don't drink from the same vase together. Think with me back to the civil rights era and the level of bigotry that was necessary to say, I will not share a water fountain with uh, a black man, as as the whites 
as whites did. And that's just a stream of water. You're suspending your lips above a stream of water and you say, I won't touch that. Well, Jesus is doing something far more radical, isn't he? He's saying, my lips will drink from the very same vase that your dirty lips would drink from. It's unthinkable. That's the first taboo. The second, and I'll go through this one a little more quickly. It was very highly irregular for a Jewish man to talk to a strange woman in public. There was an entire group, a, a school of Pharisees, of rabbis, who they were called the black and blue Pharisees because whenever they saw a woman on the street, apparently, supposedly, they would close their eyes (laughs) and would trip over sidewalk curbs or run into corners of houses. They were the bruised Pharisees because they wouldn't even look upon a woman. It was said that some Jewish rabbis wouldn't even talk to their own wives in public wouldn't talk to to their own daughters in public for fear that it might be somehow misconstrued. It was very strange that Jesus would strike up a conversation with her. Thirdly, did you notice the time of day that this event is taking place? What time was it? It was at noon. uh, In the arid, hot, Middle Eastern weather. and, And she's all alone. Many Bible scholars have pointed out that this is definitely not the customary time when women would ordinarily come to, to draw water. I mean, that custom is still practiced today. If you and I went to an African village, let's say in the southern part of the Sudan, the way that the village life works, the women go out at the beginning of the day to draw the water from the well so that they'll have water available for the rest of the day to do their, their household chores. I mean, no woman goes to draw water in the Sudan at high noon, and certainly not alone. So what do you think this tells us? What is this telling us about this woman? Well, she's a social outcast. She is um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's character, the scarlet letter pinned to her breast. She's been rejected by the women of her village. She's no longer welcome to come and participate in the communal exercises of village life. She's, she's an outcast from them. And Jesus Christ is taking steps toward her. Jesus, here's what the original readers of John would immediately notice. He is deliberately reaching across every significant barrier that existed in their world, be it racial, cultural, gender, or moral. Like every convention of their time that a fine, upstanding Jewish rabbi ought to be observing, he disregards. He couldn't care less because he wants her. Well, when I went off to college, I, was, I participated in a campus Christian ministry which placed a heavy emphasis on sharing your faith, evangelizing other people. One of the ways they tried to help us tell our story about Jesus or tell the story how we came to faith in Jesus is they would give us an outline and say, you'll kind of follow this outline when you're telling your story. The outline went like this. Like, Here's what my life was like before I met Jesus. Then here was the dramatic conversion that I experienced. And you can experience too. Once I met Jesus, 
here is how awesome I have been ever since I, I met Jesus. The problem was, in my case, that that just didn't fit. I certainly wasn't awesome, <laughs> but I never had experienced a dramatic conversion to begin with. Uh, I was a guy who grew up in the church, was never part of a biker gang. <laughs> Wednesdays and, and Sundays, you could find me inside the doors of a church. Uh, for the most part, I never wrestled with doubts about the credibility of the Christian message. I Never wrestled a whole lot with big vices. I mean, I've never smoked before. I didn't drink. I mean, I was a bit of a goody two-shoes. But I I never had this dramatic time where I said, wow, I used to not be a Christian, but now I am a Christian. I felt kind of deprived, actually. (laughs) If if I could have told the story back in the day when I rode with the Hell's Angels, you know, I thought that would be a little more compelling. Here's the deal. Even though um, I never experienced a dramatic conversion, I can look back and see, uh, even in my church days, Jesus Christ initiating with me. Jesus Christ searching after me. And and that's a significant thing. I mean, those of us church kids, guys who grew up in the church, um, it's... You just kind of take it for granted that, oh yeah, Jesus wants to, wants to come towards. But I think in retrospect, now I, I realize just how precious this is. And you know, one of the axioms of the faith is if you find yourself being drawn to God or if you find yourself seeking after God, it's because he's already seeking after you. If, if by any coincidence or by chance you find yourself wanting God, it's because he's already initiated the conversation. Um, He's already begun to cross the barriers. That's one axiomatic uh, truth. I think the other one that stood out to me from the passage is that we're all this woman. Like every one of us is the Samaritan woman at the well. Today, I know way more about how messed up I am inside and how desperately um, disordered my inner life is. I know that way more than I did back in college. If you ask me the days of college, well, are you like the Samaritan woman? I'd be like, yeah, maybe, not not really. But no, we are, every one of us is supposed to see ourselves in terms of this mirror of this woman. Uh, from choir boy to red light district prostitute, we are all the women at the well that Jesus has come to look for. That's the first point, major point. Second, let's look at the uh, interesting dialogue beginning in verse 10. Beginning in verse 10, um, Jesus says, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me for living water and... If you drank from that water, you would never thirst again. Now, the woman interprets him very literally. When she hears living water, what does she associate that with? Physical running water. She says, what are you talking about? This is the only well that's around here for miles. And this was dug by my ancestors. She asks him the question, do you know of some 
desert stream or oasis that I, I don't know about? If, if so, please then give me the living water. She's thinking of it entirely in those physical terms. And Jesus, uh, she says, please give me the water. And Jesus replies, how? With a non sequitur. He says, go call your husband. Go call your husband. I, I thought we were just talking about water here. Why is it that Jesus is changing the topic from living water to her history with men? And the answer is, of course, he's not changing the topic. This, this is the topic. This is a woman who had had five husbands in a patriarchal society 2,000 years ago, which is pretty much unheard of. Nobody goes through five husbands and five divorces. Nobody in that day has a sixth husband as a live-in boyfriend. What Jesus is doing, he is trying to point out to this woman, woman, you are irremediably thirsty. You're so thirsty. And no sooner does he begin to drill down into the, the personal recesses of her heart then she does what? Verse 19. She says, let's talk theology. <laughs> she totally redirects the conversation to a political and theological hot-button topic. Picks up this idea of, uh, well, where should we be worshiping? Should we worship here on Mount Gerizim? Or should we be worshiping down in the, in the temple in Jerusalem um, I tell you, I've been a pastor for 15 years, and this is a very common pattern. As soon as you start to talk to people about Jesus, they deflect and turn the conversation in directions that, uh, that are kind of like this. Well, um, what about all those people who have never heard about Christianity before or heard about Jesus before? Will they go to hell? Or what about homosexuality? And is that, is that biblical or unbiblical? Or what about... Abortion, they take it in all of these abstract theological questions, which are good questions, great questions, but they're not the issue that God is trying to work on with us right now. And the fact is, you are never going to get anywhere with Jesus until you let him first ask you the difficult and important questions. And in this case, the important question do you understand how thirsty, how tremendously thirsty your soul is? I, um, I said in the first service, I'll say it again. Uh, I appreciated Shelton's words about the historical credibility of the resurrection. I don't want to at all give you the impression that Christianity is a check-your-mind-at-the-door kind of religion where you're not supposed to ask hard intellectual questions. What I try and do when I, especially when I talk to students, is, is say, when they're on the intellectual path, I try to say to them, start with the resurrection first. Find out if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a credible historical event. And then, if you decide that it, and come to the conclusion that it is, then work out from there. Let the resurrection be central and then let the trajectory be out uh, elsewhere. Then start to try to answer the questions about evolution versus uh, creation or why are there so many different religions in the world or why is there such a big problem with evil or you know, all of those kinds of questions. The trajectory is begin with the resurrection first and work 
outward. But the primary thing he wants here is to help the woman understand her irremedial thirst. Most of us are not very good at recognizing our spiritual thirst, are we? Not at all. We misdiagnose the spiritual thirst just like this woman did. Man after man, relationship after relationship, just trying to build a little world of our own where we can, where she could feel cherished and treasured like any reasonable woman w- would want. We misdiagnose that thirst. One of the authors I was reading this week on this passage, he put it this way. He said, uh, we mis- misdiagnose our thirst. As long as we think there's a pretty good chance that we will achieve some of our dreams in life, or as long as we think we have a shot at the su- success, then we will misinterpret the inner emptiness. Uh, we'll mislabel it as drive, I'm driven. And we will mislabel the inner anxiety as hope. For most of us, most of us tell ourselves that the reason we remain unfulfilled is because we simply haven't been able to achieve our goals or we simply haven't found that right person. Um, or we do it in psychological terms. We got a guy right here and you know he's, he's the most driven guy in your department. Why is he so driven? Well, it's because he's always lived in the shadow of his older brother and we interpret it in psychological terms. Here's a woman who is very emotionally needy. She always needs to have a husband or a guy by her side. Why is she so emotionally needy? Well, it's because her father never loved her, gave her early childhood love like she needed. We misdiagnose and misinterpret. And so, here's how the quote ends. So we can live almost our entire lives without admitting to ourselves the depth of our spiritual thirst. Uh, how thirsty? Uh, how thirsty are you? Um, has God begun to make you aware of that? I, I, those are rhetorical questions. I, don't, I mean, I don't expect you to answer it, but usually in a given church service, especially on Easter Sunday, there's a few people who really understand, like the Holy Spirit is starting to reveal to them uh, what's going on inside, the the depth of their spiritual thirst. Um, And sometimes it can be very, very deep. You know, the scientists say that our bodies are are comprised of about 70% water. So when a person is dying of dehydration, literally every cell in their body is screaming out, give me what I need, what I have, uh, what I'm supposed to have. Every fiber and nerve in our body is screaming out. I need water. When people are dying of dehydration, it's like the sun that is beating down on the outside of them comes on the inside of them, and there's this enormous searing pain burning inside of them. Uh, And at that moment of dehydration, when they're just ready to lay down under the tree in the desert and just just die. They're delirious and they will drink anything. They will drink sand. They will drink pancake syrup. They'll drink antifreeze, anything. And just follow that metaphor. Have you met people who are just like that? Who are so desperate to have their thirst quenched that they are just reaching and grabbing for anything 
because their soul is screaming for it. And is that you? Well, let's move on with the story. (laughs) The disciples show back up and they know that something weird has happened here. She's probably pretty puffy-eyed and her mascara is running because she's been crying quite a bit. There's probably a used box of Kleenex sitting there on the well. (laughs) And in perfectly male fashion, what do the disciples do? (laughs) Nothing. They they don't even acknowledge that anything has happened here. (laughs) So typical. So she goes back into the village and she says to the village, I think this guy might be the Messiah. You've got to come out and see this man. Now she's only known him for minutes, less than an hour. How is it that she could go in and tell other people, I think this must, might be the Messiah. You've got to come out. How could she do that? Well, here's how. Let me illustrate it uh, by, let me illustrate this way. I want to introduce to you Mike Smith. Real person, Mike Smith. He graduated from Highlands High School in Pocatello back in the early 1990s. He went to Idaho State, go Bengals, and now Mike lives in the city of Boise with his uh, high school sweetheart wife. They've been married for 15 years. Her name is Carol. They have two adorable sons, ages 10 and 7, Caleb and Mitch. Mike is your quintessential Idaho guy. He loves the outdoors. He loves to hunt. The bumper sticker on his Dodge Ram 1500 reads that if God wanted us to be vegetarians, he would have made broccoli more fun to shoot at. (laughs) Everything has an antler, right? He loves the outdoors. Mike and his buddies ended up back in January going down to Mexico, renting out a a chartered boat and and doing some deep sea fishing. And he ended up catching a 30-pound Mai Mai, beautiful, you've seen those fish before, truly gorgeous uh, dolphin fish. He loves the Boise State Broncos. They're season ticket holders. He loves the Miami Dolphins. He's a member of Element Athletic Fitness Gym in Meridian and the Southwest Idaho Fly Fishing Association, among other notable organizations. So what's the catch? I did say he's a real person. What's the catch? Well, the catch is this. On Wednesday, I typed into my browser, what is the most common first and last name in the state of Idaho? (laughs) I took that name, and then I typed it into Facebook, Browsed the list there until I found a Mike Smith that lives in Boise, Idaho. I spent about 15 minutes reviewing his Facebook profile and making sure that we don't have any mutual friends. (laughs) (laughs) Social psychologists make an important differentiation, two types of knowledge. They say that there is personal knowledge and impersonal knowledge. On one level, I know Mike. If I saw Mike Smith on the street, I would recognize him. If I walked into a coffee shop, I could say, Mike, dude, great to see you. Is is Carol here with you? (laughs) How are Caleb and Mitch? (laughs) I remember that you were going to go 
deep sea fishing in Mexico with your buddies back in January. How did that go? And at this point, Mike Smith would be freaking out. <laughs> What's? But I'm, I know him. I know him well enough to carry on polite and casual conversation. But social psychologists would say, and we would say, this isn't personal knowledge. This is not personal knowledge. For this to become personal knowledge, Mike and I would have to sit down at the table uh, across from each other, and with tears in his eyes, he would have to talk to me about the hopes that he has for Caleb and Mitch, the, the sorrows and the joys of his marriage to Carol, the struggles that he has uh, in his job, the, um, you know, his, his mother's cancer ceremony. And it would only be in that moment, if he opens up his heart to me, that I would actually know Mike Smith. So why is it that this woman goes back to the village and says, I think I found the Messiah? Two words for you. Living water. We read, and you're just going to have to take my word for it, later on in John's gospel, that the living water Jesus is talking about, it turns out to be the living water. Does anybody know? It wasn't here in the first service. The living water of his spirit. The personal presence of Jesus' spirit. He says, if I give to you this, you need it more than your body needs water. Spiritually, you need this personal, intimate disclosure of my heart more than your, even more than your dehydrated, uh, dying body needs water. And if I give you this and you receive it, you will never thirst again. We grow up uh, church kids like me, and we can tell, we've got a Facebook profile of Jesus. We can tell you a whole lot about him. We can tell you a whole lot about him. But my question to you is, do you know this living water? I mean, maybe that's why you're here this morning. Um, Just like this woman who goes out to the well in Samaria. She wasn't going expecting to find God. She was just going to do whatever. And maybe you're here this morning, it's Easter Sunday, and you're, you're here because your grandma drug you to church. Or you're here because a friend invited you to church, and you didn't come here expecting anything. But maybe you're here because he wants to give you deeper personal knowledge. If that's the case, so I've written up a prayer here. I'm going to read you this prayer out loud. And I know that I do not believe in praying prayers that you, uh, you don't believe in, or, it's kind of redundant, isn't it? I don't believe in praying prayers that you, your heart can't say amen to. So this is a prayer that is not for every one of you. I know that. Some of you, are, you're really not ready to make the jump from uh, unbelief to faith. But there may be somebody. There was last year on Easter Sunday. There may be somebody here who is ready to pray this. And read it through one time and then we'll pray it silently. Lord God, somehow I know these things are true. I know that I am thirsty, and I know that I've tried to quench that thirst in many sinful ways. I am spiritually speaking like this Samaritan woman trying to build a world of my own apart from you. I realize that now. Um, Now I believe Jesus Christ died to forgive me and give me eternal life. 
And I want to trust Christ to lead me going forward through the rest of my life, both through life and through death, to find uh, whether or not these living waters are real and satisfying. If that prayer is the right prayer for you, then uh, echo it in your heart as we've prayed together now. Let's bow our heads. Lord God, I know, somehow I know these things are true. I know that I am very thirsty, and I know that I have tried to quench that thirst in sinful ways. I am spiritually speaking just like the Samaritan woman, trying to build a world of my own without you. I realize that. And I believe that Jesus Christ died to forgive me and give me eternal life. I want to trust Christ to lead me going forward through the rest of my life, both through life and through death. And I want to discover if these living waters are sufficient. Amen.